If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 11. Or if you have one of our bulletins, the passages of Scripture should be on the back uh, of your, or on one side of the bulletins. I don't know if there's a back anymore. It's just a two-sided piece of paper. Um, so uh, we are, we're in the midst of this series that we've been doing for a little while now. And what the, the whole idea behind this series is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of articulating um, what, what, it, what it is like to go through a deconstruction of your faith kind of phase. And uh, kind of using my own deconstruction period as, as kind of the jumping off point for that whole thing. And, and the metaphor I've, I've continued to use is like, let's say you've got all this mental furniture arranged in your, in your head and you're trying to figure out like what, you know, what parts, what, what, which pieces of that furniture need to like come out, which pieces need to stay in, which pieces perhaps need new, like a new point of prominence, maybe new, new things that just need to, to be brought in for the first time. And, um, and one of the things that I've, I've tried to, to emphasize is this is mostly reflective of my own journey that if you were to have another pastor up here doing this exact same concept, you would have a whole different like set of sermons because this is r- very personal and very interpretive of just like my own kind of particular like series of questions, discoveries, what have you. So I, I want to obviously want to be upfront about like th- this isn't like these are the ones that came from down on a high and like this is what I wanted to hand you this this is you know, this is reflective of my own sort of deconstruction and reconstruction and um, and you know just kind of where where I am and where I've been on that particular journey and I, I I've been thinking a lot about um, what what it was like to kind of go through that and I, my my big like deep dark night of the soul moment like full deconstruction, like everything came out of the, the room all at once kind of moment happened before, not, not only before we started collecting, but before I, I was, before I was no longer employed at, the, at my previous church. And, um, and I remember one night just very specifically feeling just sort of like this emptied out kind of like, I don't know if I believe in anything anymore, like kind of, like kind of very quietly becoming an atheist in my own head and just sort of, or like, I, I don't know what any, like, I don't know if any of this is real. I don't know if anything that I've ever believed is true. And like it was really just to be perfectly honest, it was really scary. And it was it was a um, it, it was one of those things of like, well, if, if none of this is true, then what is the point of anything? And it, it was sort of like this downward spiral of like <laughs> like utter like faithlessness and despair. And like I don't know what to do with this kind of kind of emotion. Um, and it felt it felt really scary, and I felt totally powerless. And I remember um, I remember very specifically like thinking to myself like I need like because here okay here's the thing if you are come out of a system and that system has promised you answers and certainty and then you come to a point where those things not only start feeling wobbly but feel imaginary then all of a sudden everything begins to get really really scary you begin to feel really powerless because again if you came out of a system that tells you like do these things believe these ideas and everything will be fine and you will have, and not only will everything be fine in this life, but you will die, and then you everything will be fine in the next life. And so you're given all this certainty and all this, and, and what it feels like is it feels like power. If you do these things, it's a formula. If you do these things, then you will have this this kind of certainty, power, uh, whatever, whatever whatever it is that you're seeking, you will have some sort of inner like confidence that all these things are going to give you what it is that you you hope they give you. And so in, in a in a headspace where you're you're feeling powerlessness someone trying to offer some amount of power and control over that powerlessness can be very appealing, right? And so I remember kind of this, this moment of, I feel like I felt powerless for the first time because like when, when, that, when that system begins to sort of dissolve and when, when, it, when you begin to deconstruct that, it begins, you begin to feel really, really like 
um, upended. It, 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 and I remember in, in that moment, I remember like I, I was felt compelled to pray because I didn't know what else to do because prayer is like the last act of power that you have, I think, when you feel powerlessness. And so I remember, and the only prayer I could muster was this absurd, I, I remember feeling like how absurd it was that I had to pray like specifically these words. And the, and the, the prayer I prayed was, dear God, please exist. Um, which again is absurd, is an absurd thing to pray, right? But, um, but that, was, that was all I had. It was, it was all I could do to, to just utter those words because I was scared and I, di I didn't know, and I felt so wi without control and without power. And, um, and I don't know how relatable that is. I, I, I don't know how many of us in this room, I, I, I suspect that more than a few of us perhaps have been in a, in a place like that where we just like, I, and maybe not exactly that, but that feeling of just like powerlessness and that feeling of a, a lack of certitude of just like, well, what? Like, I don't even, I don't even have words to describe like how, how it feels to be this out of control. Um, and so, which naturally just brings us to Matthew 11. So, um, and you know, what's funny is I, um, before the pandemic, back like in more, more like in larger like groups of people, anytime I'm preaching or teaching or ha like having any sort of like public presentation, I always have this, this like deep um, lack of confidence in myself. And I feel like the only way to overcome my, my lack of self-confidence is to make the room laugh as quickly as possible. And so I realized like today I kind of blew it because I just got up here and was like, what if God doesn't exist? Like, okay, that's, that's super funny, right? Like, and, and now that you've laughed, I feel comfortable again. So <laughs> thank you for that. So anyway, so now we're, now we're looking at Matthew chapter 11 and I apologize for just like coming into this like as heavy as I did. Um, but the thing is you find, you find this emotion all over the scripture. Th this is not absent from the scriptures. This, this feeling and this, this art the, the articulation of this feeling is kind of everywhere. If, if you're looking for it in the Bible. So in Matthew 11, you have this guy named John and often referred to as John the baptizer or John the Baptist. And John has been going around and John's whole thing is he's pointing the way towards Jesus, but as he's doing it, he's critiquing the powers that are like the people who have gotten rich and powerful under the, uh, under the, uh, uh, under the authority of the Roman empire. And so if you live inside of the most powerful empire that has ever existed on earth and you begin critiquing and um, like kind of, kind of poking at like all the, all the different, the, like the system that has created this power, then eventually you're going to run afoul of some very powerful, very influential, very wealthy people. And that's where John is. And so John has ended up in prison. And now John is getting scared because he's beginning to realize he's pointing the way towards Jesus, who, I, who John believes is, he's basically saying like, I believed, I have gone this whole time telling people that Jesus is here to liberate us from the oppressive power of Rome. And in doing so, I've made a lot of people who have gotten very powerful and wealthy out of Rome, I've made a lot of those people very, very angry. And now I'm in this prison cell, and, and what I wanna know is, did I bet on the wrong horse? Am, am I, did, did I put all of this effort and all of this attention and all of this energy into Jesus? And it turns out, maybe Jesus isn't who I thought he was. And that's a scary moment. And so John, sends word to Jesus, basically asking him, basically praying the same prayer that I, like, please exist, please be as real as I think you are. And so in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse two, it says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he's referring to Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Which is a sad thing for John to have to say, because at this point, John has said, I mean, John has been not made a secret in like his utter confidence in Jesus up to this point. John is 
I mean, again, he has insulted some very powerful, very influential, very wealthy people, and he's ended up where he is because he believed that Jesus was the one who was to come. And so now he's in prison, and he's beginning to have some questions. And John, so John sends word to Jesus, like, are you really who I think you are, or should we expect somebody else? Like, is it, are you, are you really the person that I say, that I've gone around telling, that I put, that I, like, risked my life for, or is it possible that I was wrong? And that's, the, that's essentially John's question. And so Jesus replies in typical Jesus fashion where he not, neither offers a yes nor a no. He says, uh, he says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So John here is, he's, or I'm sorry, so Jesus is doing this thing um, that a lot of rabbis would have done uh, at, at this time, which is like to communicate not through like yes or no answers or to questions, but basically to answer like by quoting a part of scripture. And by quoting a part of scripture, what Jesus is doing is he's sort of quasi evoking the whole thing. Um, and, or he's, um, he, he's invoking like the, the, the entire, um, not evoking, sorry. Uh, he's, 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 calling, he's calling upon the rest of it, and he's drawing, he's pulling people's minds into the rest of it. So uh, in, in Jewish culture, this is what's referred to as a, a remez, which is basically a way of saying, like, if you quote one piece of scripture, you're, you're, like, bringing to top of mind the entire rest of it. So, like, the example somebody gave in the last service was, like, if I were to stand up here and say, the stars at night are big and bright, everybody would be like, got it. Yeah, so everybody, somebody would clap, and, and I wouldn't need to finish it. So, like, to live in Texas, like, that's, that is a Texan remez. And so, not a thing you get to say a lot. Um, so, th this is... <laughs> so, so, that, so, that's what that is. Like, so, so Jesus is quoting a part of the... You just, you're just like, oh, right, deep in the heart of Texas. Got it. <laughs> that's what I... If you're, like, to, to, to our viewers not from Texas, um, that, that may have been confusing. Sorry about that. Um, that was that was a deeply Texan thing to to do just now. So um, anyway, so what John what Jesus is doing is he's quoting Isaiah or he's he's um, he's invoking Isaiah chapter uh, twenty uh, sixty one. So uh, if you go back to Isaiah sixty one, just in verse one, there there is there's a piece of this that Jesus is making reference to. So in Isaiah sixty one it says, "The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives, to release the darkness for the prisoners um, or the blind. Um, and so, uh, so what, what Jesus is doing is he's taking this imagery from Isaiah chapter 21 or 61 and he's kind of laying it on top of his answer to John. But here's the thing that Jesus leaves out. Here's the thing that he doesn't say. Jesus does not say the part about prisoners being set free. Why? Because John's not going to be set free. John's going to die in prison. And so, and, and so Jesus answers, I'm exactly who you believe I am, but that doesn't mean this is going to be any easier. So John's prayer is, or John's question to Jesus is, are you really who I believe you are, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus says, I'm exactly who you think I am, but it's still going to be difficult. And you're still, and, and he leaves out the part about, the prisoners being set free. And then Jesus also says the part about um, blessed is he who doesn't stumble on account of me, which is another way of saying blessed is, or fortunate is the person who doesn't lose his sense of self or his identity as a result of how hard this journey can be. So essentially Jesus says, yeah, 
I'm exactly who you think I am. And yes, you are going to die in prison. So there, John is having a dark night of the soul and Jesus gives, gives him what he's got. And he says, but that doesn't mean it's going to be any easier. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. There's this other story. There's this guy named Moses. Moses has spent his whole life trying to guide this group of people, the Hebrew people, into what they often would refer to as the promised land or the holy land. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 32, you find out Moses' Moses's journey will end before he achieves his goal. So in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, it says, in verse 48, it says, On that same day, the Lord told Moses, Go up to, to the Abarim range, to Mount Nebo in Moab, across from Jericho, and view Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and, and was gathered to his people. This is because both, you, both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites in the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zen, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving, you, giving to the people of Israel. So Moses spends 40 years trying to get to this land, but right as he's about to enter the, like, the threshold, he stops and he doesn't get to go in. He never gets to see this goal that he, he spends his whole life in pursuit of this goal and he never sees it fulfilled. What's interesting is the Bible is filled with stories of people who don't get what they want. And I think um, it's, it's easy, again, it's easy to, to, to assume because, because there, there is a, this, within evangelical culture, there is this sort of sense that, well, if you do the right things, if you pray enough, if you go to church enough, if you give enough money, if you do all the right things, then things will always go your way and you will get the things that you want, that you, that you feel entitled to or that you, that you want most. And what, what we find with John the Baptist, what we find with Moses is, no, it's possible. It's, it's possible to do all the things exactly the way you think you're supposed to do them and to try as hard as you can and to have such deep devotion and faith and still things don't always just go your way. It's possible it's possible to not get what we want. The Bible is full of stories like that. Look at uh, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is this interesting kind of case study. We could, if you really want to be bummed out, we could just do a whole series on the book of Jeremiah. Um, so Jeremiah is this prophet. And the thing about Jeremiah is every single time he does what God tells him to do in the book of Jeremiah, every single time he does the right thing, he ends up being punished for it. Like truly no good deed goes unpunished if you're Jeremiah. And it starts to really get to him. And it starts to seem like he's just about had enough. So in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7, Jeremiah says this. This is a prayer. He says, You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. This is in the Bible. You deceived me and I was deceived, O Lord. Um, this word deceived, by the way, it's, if, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it could be persuaded. Another, it's the word pata. Another way you could use this word would be seduced. Um, so basically he's saying, he's praying to God, God, you led me to believe that if I did the right thing, everything would be okay. What happened? Why is everything not okay? Why, why is every, why is it that every single time I do the right thing, it, I, my life gets worse? Like, why, why does this keep happening? Jeremiah is bitter. He's wounded and he, he wants to know why. And in his prayer, he prays, I've been deceived. You, God, deceived me and I felt deceived. So the Bible is full of stories about people who do the right thing and they try their best and they don't, things don't go the way that they wanted them to. Look at Mark chapter 14. 
in Mark 14, you have Jesus. This is a, a famous scene in which Jesus is about to be arrested. And Jesus is really struggling with the suffering that's about to come his way. And so in Mark 14, uh, beginning in verse 32, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to, he became, began, I'm sorry, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Then in verse 35 it says, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus says, I don't want this, but... I, I will surrender the, the outcome because he's, uh, so this is a very human experience that Jesus is having. I don't want to do this. I don't want what's about to happen next. And then he says, but not what I will, what you will. In other words, like I have a lot less control here than I wish I had. We cannot control people and places and things. Um, one of the things that came out of my first season of deconstruction was that I have so much less control than I ever thought I had. Um, I, I think, uh, and, and again, just to sort of go back to what, what I said earlier, I, I think one of the things that American evangelical culture is trying to sell is the idea that we do have a, like some amount of power or certainty or control or that we can pray or give in a way that God will do the things that we want God to do. Like there's this formula that we can fill out. Um, but it turns out who we are instead, if you will, are people who don't have as much power as we often think that we have. And this realization of like, I just don't have, like this, this, this understanding of, I, I don't want this, but I realize I have a lot less control. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's like, I have a lot less control over the outcome than I wish I had. Um, I mentioned last week, I realize it's a very heavy de- uh, sermon, sorry. Um, but uh, last, last week, I, I mentioned before that I, had, I went to a funeral um, a, a week ago Friday. And um, it, the, the funeral was for, okay, I, when I was a kid growing up, I had a best friend. And my childhood best friend's father died and um, just a couple of weeks ago. And he was way too young to, to have gone, and uh, he was very sick for a long time. And, um, and I remember, like, throughout the, 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 the period of months that he was sick, I remember getting these emails from either from his family, like members of his family, or people who were like communicating on behalf of his family. And the emails were always, please pray for this outcome. P- please pray for this treatment to go well. Please for, pray, for this, pray for this test to come back the way we hope it does. And sometimes it didn't, sometimes it didn't, and ultimately the outcome was that he died. And so I, um, and I remember like there would be like photos of like people gathered around his hospital bed, or people like with their hands on his back and like praying over him. and. Um, so much prayer and so much time and so much energy went into like people investing their emotional will over the, the outcome of this thing. And he died two weeks ago. And, um, and I remember a, a couple of days before the funeral, I was talking to my friend, the, the guy whose father died. And um, who, by the way, my friend is also a pastor. And um, he, he was telling me, he said, he said, I don't, I, I want to, he said, I want to ask why, but at the same time, there's no answer that would make me feel better. 
and he said, there's no, there's no, he, his, his actual words were, he said, there's no equation that would make this make sense to me. And I thought that, that is such a, that's such a wise, poignant um, observation, right? Like in the midst of this, there's no, there's no equation that makes this make sense. There's no, there's no thing that makes this better. There's no answer to why. Um, and so, but again, there's this, like people tried so hard to exert their our, like prayer and will over like control over this outcome, and the outcome didn't go the way we hoped it did. And I, I think, and, and maybe not to that extreme, but I think we can all relate to a certain degree that feeling, right? Like just the feeling of this is this is not what I thought would happen. This is not the outcome we hoped for. This is not what I had in mind. Or even just like the going back to my prayer from before, which is I feel helpless here. I feel powerless. I think we can all relate to that feeling, right? And and there are these things that we do to try and make ourselves feel less powerless, but ultimately all that does is it sort of reminds us how powerless we are a lot of the time. Um, and even, even like in terms of like how we relate to each other and how we interact with other people, like you, you can't make someone do what they don't want to do. You cannot exert your will over another person's decisions. I mean, maybe you can for a short time, but then they go to middle school and you're powerless <laughs> again. Um, and... <laughs> Because, because there's only like this small window where you actually can't control like a, a person's behavior and then it just goes away like the minute they hit adolescence. And so, um, and so quite, quite often we try, and, uh, we try to control or exert power or manipulate people. We try and control somebody's decisions. We try and make someone um, feel a certain way or do a certain thing or, or exhibit a certain like kind of behavior and we can't. And, it, and a lot of times when we try and like control or manipulate people, it only makes things worse. And and it turns out we just have a lot less control than we thought we did. And, and when Jesus says, and when Jesus like kind of exhibits the art of surrender. In Mark 14, Jesus is modeling the art of surrender. And the thing is, Jesus isn't passive. He, he exerts his will. He states his preference, and then he surrenders. He loosens his grip on everything. And I think loosening your grip on everything and realizing that in, in the act of surrendering isn't... Um, I, I would argue that that's not like letting go of control. I would argue that what that is, is it's the realization, it's the admission that we never had control in the first place. Um, in, fa in fact, um, at the funeral, we, um, one of the, the hymns, there were a lot of hymns that we sang. One of the hymns that we sang at the funeral was the song, I Surrender All. And I grew up hearing that song. And I always thought that and like, it was just part of like the DNA of my like, early theological like, makeup. And I always thought the, the act of surrender was the act of choosing to not have control in places where we already have control. But it turns out that's not really what surrender is. Surrender isn't choosing to not have control. Surrender is the act of realizing that I never had control in the first place. And so this, I would argue that, that that's what Jesus is doing. When Jesus says, not my will, but your will, I would argue that what Jesus isn't doing is he's not giving up control. He's saying, I have no control here. And, and the, the, the realization of, ha of th this realization and this admission to ourselves that, that I have no control, like there's, there's a certain kind of power that, that shows up in that. In fact, look at what uh, this writer Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, this writer Paul, he has, he articulates a lot of frustration over something he refers to as his thorn in the flesh. And it varies, like, a lot of, there's been a lot of conjecture over, like, what is Paul's thorn in the flesh? And, and no one really knows. Like, there, there's never been, a, a, like, a good answer to what it is. It's possible there, there was some sort of, like, physical malady Paul was uh, dealing with. It's also possible 
the theory I like is there was this group of people who were following Paul around from town to town that basically just like every time Paul would go go to a place and like tell them about like the grace and peace of Jesus, this other group of people would come along and say, no, everything Paul said was wrong. Basically like real life, like in-person trolls, like just like going around, um, like trying to undo all the work that Paul was doing, which it, the entire book of Galatians is a response to that group of people. So um, so it's possible that Paul's thorn in the flesh is this group of people and Paul's just basically had it. with. And so I, it's, it's possible that that's what it is. It's, it, so ultimately, we, we don't know what it is, which kind of adds, like the ambiguity kind of adds to the power of it because it could be anything. And so what Paul's writing here is he's saying there's this, there's this thing that I really want to, that would make my, if, if it was gone, it would make my life so much better. It would make my life so much easier, but it won't go away. And so in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning of verse 8, he writes this. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to, to take it away from me, to this thorn in the flesh. But he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Which sounds like a paradox, the idea of when I am weak, then I am strong. But Paul's pointing out here, he didn't choose to be weak. He simply surrendered the fact that he's been weak the whole time. So, who are we? It, like, and again, to go along with the, 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 the sermon series idea of, like, there's this idea that we had about who we are, but then there's this, this reality of who we are instead. The, 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 the idea that we had in, of ourselves was we have a certain amount of power. We have a certain amount of agency and, like, um, control over certain outcomes and certain, like, ways people behave and the way God behaves. Um, and who we are instead is we're a lot more powerless than we thought we were. And we are weak, but in our weakness, in our surrender, there's a certain kind of freedom. There's a certain kind of strength because surrender isn't giving, I'll say it again, surrender isn't giving up control. It's acknowledging that we never had control in the first place, which sounds really like dour and, and sad, but it turns out it's actually good news. I think what Paul is saying here is good news. And the reason is because when we realize I can't, when I realize I can't control everything, it, makes, it means I don't have to keep trying to control everything. It frees me up to actually interact with the world in ways that I do have some amount of agency and control over, which we'll talk about a little bit next week. But because there are some things that we do have some amount of power over, like our own responses to things and our, like what we, what we choose to put into the world and how we choose to interact with other people. We have some control. It's just we don't have the kind of control that a lot of times we wish we had. And when, we, when I abdicate that, when I choose to say I don't have control over this outcome, and I, just to acknowledge that, it frees me up to no longer try and control things that I can't control anyway. So may we, may you, resist the urge to control things that you never had control over to begin with. May we surrender all the outcomes that we don't have power over. And may we choose to say, when I'm weak, then I am strong. May, may we become the kind of people who recognize where, like, where our power stops because we have a lot less of it than I think we like to believe that we do. So may we release those kinds of outcomes because we never had control over it to begin with. May we, may we be set free by the, by the acknowledgement of our powerlessness and may we choose to use the things that we do have power over to bring some kind of good and shalom into the world. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this realization, this invitation to 
acknowledge that we have less power than we wish we did. And while that can be a really scary thing, may we find that we are set free by this realization, that our powerlessness actually sets us free from trying to control the things that we can't control. And for those of us who are in the midst of a dark night of the soul, for those of us who, for whom powerlessness is really scary, may we find grace and may we find peace in the midst of that struggle. Um, for those of us who are praying prayers like Jeremiah, I feel deceived. May we be honest about that struggle. May we never shy away from the difficult prayers and the difficult questions. But may that ultimately lead us to some kind of grace and some kind of peace. May we find ourselves being more empowered to show love and grace in the world. May we be set free from all the things that we never had control over to begin with. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all so, so much for being here with us. Uh, next week is 4th of July. We'll be here. Um, at least some, I'll be here. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what everybody else's plans are, but we'll definitely be here for on, on 4th of July. So um, anyway, I hope everybody has a great, if, uh, if, if, you're, if you're, you'll be here, then we'll see you next week. If not, then uh, have a great, safe, uh, happy 4th of July. And then, um, uh, you know, then we'll be back here again the week after because that's what we do. So um, anyway, there are offering boxes in, in the back if you want to give. Thank you so much for being here. Grace and peace be with you.